The scripture reading today is from John chapter 21, 1 to 14. Later, Jesus appeared once again to a group of his disciples by Lake Galilee. It happened one day while Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Jacob, John, and two other disciples were all together. Peter told them, I'm going fishing, and they all replied, we'll go with you. So they went out and finished through the night, but caught nothing. Then at dawn, Jesus was standing there on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was him. He called out to them saying, did you catch any fish? Not a thing, they replied. Jesus shouted to them, throw your net over the starboard side and you'll catch some. And so they did as he said, and they caught so many fish they couldn't even pull in the nets. Then the disciples, the disciple who Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Peter heard him say that, he quickly wrapped his outer garment around him, and he dove right into the lake to go to Jesus. The other disciples then brought the boat to shore, dragging their catch of fish. They weren't far from land, only about 100 meters. And when they got to shore, they noticed a charcoal fire with some roasted fish and bread. Then Jesus said, bring some of the fish you just caught. So Peter waded into the water and helped pull the net to shore. It was full of many large fish, exactly 153. But even with so many fish, the net was not torn. Come, let's have some breakfast, Jesus said to them. And not one of the disciples needed to ask who it was, because every one of them knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus came close to them and served them bread and fish. This was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. So on Easter Sunday and afterwards, you say, he is risen, and then everybody else says what? He's risen indeed, and sometimes if you're schnazzy, you say hallelujah at the end. So I don't know if you guys grew up doing that. I grew up going to an Episcopalian school, so we were all about the get down, get up, respond, do the responses. You knew all the stuff out of the prayer book, and it always struck me, though, as a little bit funny. You get done with Easter, and you say, he's risen, and you say, he's risen indeed. Now what? Now what? We acknowledge that he is risen. What do we do about it? And that's the exact position we find the disciples in. On this morning, on the Sea of Galilee, what should we be doing? What should we be doing now that Jesus is risen? Now, this, we've been in the Gospel of John for seven weeks leading up to Easter, so eight, eight weeks total. And then last week, Grant preached on being reconciled with God through Jesus Christ because Jesus is alive. He's been raised from the dead, and we've been reunited with God because of that. And in this series, we called this series, Who Do You Say That I Am?, which is the question that Jesus asks his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And we've been talking about who your life would say that Jesus is. And the interesting thing is John answers that question. He takes these sayings of Jesus called the I am statements, and he puts them in his gospel so that you know by the end exactly who Jesus is. But the funny thing about it is Jesus says over and over, I am this, I am that, I'm the bread of life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes we're so content to just say he is, he is the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. 
But we don't take the next step to say, what do you do with the light of the world? You shine it on things. It illuminates things. You see differently. What do you do with the bread of life? You eat it. <laughs> you don't just put it under like a nice close or something and say, isn't that amazing, that bread of life? You say, no, that's supposed to be eaten so that you can have life in his name. And so all through the Gospel of John, the I am statements are declarations that lead to a command. So we know something about Jesus that leads us to do something about it. Like I said, I'm the bread of life, so eat. Make him your sustenance for your life. Feed on him. Don't depend on other things in the place of God. I am the light of the world. See, let him illuminate everything in your life. Everything else is darkness, John says, but the light is shining. I am the good shepherd, so listen to him. Follow him. When he goes somewhere, follow him. Go where he's going. Hear his voice. Know it. I am the door. So enter through him. Enter through him. All of these declarations have an action that goes with them. And the way that John is organized is the final climactic I am statement is not in the form that you see it seven other times in the gospel. You see it in his resurrection where he declares, I am life. I am, he says at Lazarus' tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. So what's the action that's tied with the resurrection? What should we do from the resurrection? Well, every single gospel, we got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them end with a command or a commission. They end with something that you can take and go and do. Because Jesus is risen, here's what the church should look like. Because think about this for a second. We read and study the New Testament, and we talk about Jesus being alive on the earth and all the things that he was doing, almost like our world would be slightly better if it were that world. You know, it would be slightly better if Jesus was here, and he was doing miracles, and he was teaching the way that he was in the Gospels. But 100% of the history of the church has occurred after Jesus was raised. The entire history of the Christian church has been in this same part of history that we're in with a risen, ascended Christ, with a spirit who dwells in us, helping us and empowering us to accomplish his mission. In fact, at the end of John, in the last dialogue he has with his disciples in chapter 15, he says, actually, it's better for me to go away because if I don't go away, the spirit won't come. And when I go away, I'm going to go to my Father, and I'm going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to be the one who empowers you to accomplish all that God has commanded you to do. He will remind you of truth. He will guide you. He will give you what you need. He will convict you. He'll change your life. He prays for you. He intercedes for you. The Spirit is the power behind the mission of God. And so we live in a time now where Jesus is alive, he has ascended, and the Spirit has descended in our hearts to accomplish what every gospel writer tells us at the end we should be doing. So the most famous statement of this is in the book of Matthew. In Matthew, you get to the very end, you have the great, capital G, commission. Go into all the world, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That is the most succinct easiest to remember way to say, what is the church doing? Making disciples, baptizing, teaching them to obey. That's, that's the command. But actually, all the gospels do this. In Mark, this is the trickiest one. In Mark, you have this really abrupt ending. It's like, you know, he rises and everybody's terrified. And it's like a cliffhanger. Like, what, what's everybody supposed to do next? 
Well, all through the Gospel of Mark, and if you've been on a Bible reading plan, you've noticed this, Jesus does something very odd in the Gospel of Mark. He tells all these people, don't say anything. Okay, so he heals somebody, he says, don't tell anybody. He does a miracle, he does a teaching, don't tell anybody about it. And you're reading, you're like, isn't that the point? You know, like, aren't we supposed to be telling people what's going on here? It's called the messianic secret in Mark, that Jesus is waiting, 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 waiting until the time comes. And the way the gospel ends is, now the secret's out. Now it's time to tell everybody. Now it's time to go and talk about what Jesus is doing. That's the commission in Mark. Go and tell everybody the time has come. Luke is the same way. Luke is a part one of a part two bestseller. I don't know if you know this, but in the first century, Luke and Acts, part one and two, Barnes and Noble, Jerusalem, sold off the shelves, circulated all over the known world. And it is part one, Jesus, part two, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus comes, he dies, he rises from the dead, and the Spirit takes his message through the ends of the earth. And in Acts 1-8, you get the theme of everything, which is, of, of that whole work, which is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, which that's where we get the word martyr. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. But you will be my witnesses, you will be my martyrs to the ends of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. Here's what God has for you. Go be his witnesses. That's how Luke ends. And now we get to John. John ends differently than the other Gospels. And this is so typical of John. It doesn't end with a command, like we would think of a command. It ends with an example. It ends with an example. John is such a master storyteller. Always in the, in the Gospel of John, when you get these big teaching blocks, you almost always have an example that goes with it. It's almost like John was one of those people that was like, yes, I hear you, but show me what that looks like in real life. Show me what that might mean for me to start doing in my own life. And we get this story of a commissioning at the end of John, where Jesus comes, he's back with his disciples, and he's going to send them on a mission. He is risen, so go fulfill the Great Commission. So in the beginning of this story in John, we find the disciples in kind of a surprising place. You would think Jesus has risen from the dead. They've actually already seen him. This is right after doubting Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas who needs to see Jesus to believe, puts his hand in his side, he believes, and now all of a sudden the disciples are not sure what to do. So they go where Jesus tells them to go. We know in the other Gospels they're supposed to go up to the Galilee and they're supposed to wait for Jesus to do something. And so they're waiting, and you would think, well, if I were a disciple, you know, I would probably be telling people about the risen Lord. That's probably what I would be doing. Or if I were a disciple, I would be so excited about what had just happened that I would never go back to the way I was before. But if we're honest, we probably would do something similar to the disciples. They did what they knew. They did what they were comfortable with. They basically didn't know what to do, so they went fishing. These guys were professional fishermen. That's what they had done before Jesus came and called them. And he said to them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. But the problem is the disciples, after Jesus rises, go back to fishing for fish. And so they're out on the Sea of Galilee. They're fishing. They're not very far away from the shore. And some people get really jazzed about this, like they had gone apostate. You know, some of the commentators are like, they had totally abandoned the faith. They'd gone back to it. I don't think they'd abandoned the faith. I think they just couldn't put two and two together. They had no idea what they were supposed to be doing, so they did what they used to do. They did what they knew. They went fishing. So the disciples are out fishing, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears on the shore. 
And in this story of what Jesus does, he's going to give us a template for what you should do when you don't know what to do. What should you do when you don't know what to do? Well, the first thing that Jesus shows is he's going to present them with the mission. He's going to let them know what the mission is. They're out fishing, and keep in mind here, every time you see them saying they weren't catching any fish, it's one thing to say that I went out and didn't catch any fish. That would be normal for me because I'm not a great fisherman. But these guys are pros. They actually had family businesses where they survived. They made their living on catching fish. And in fact, this was their home lake, okay? They had fished this since they were little boys with their dads, their dad's dads. Their family had done this forever. They knew this lake like the back of their hand, and yet they caught nothing. They, they caught nothing. And all of a sudden, this bystander on the shore, who's about 100 yards away, the text says, yells out to him. Have you guys caught anything? And they say, no, we haven't caught anything. As you can see, we're not hauling any nets back. And uh, then the guy says, why don't you throw your net over on the right side of the boat? I mean, this had to be so infuriating. I mean, it's like, yes, there's a giant school of fish, and we missed it all night because it was on the right side of the boat, (laughs) not the left side of the boat. Okay, sure, yeah, okay, we'll humor them. So they throw their nets over, and they catch a huge haul of fish. Now, at this point, for the brighter disciples, the light bulbs are coming on, okay? There's only one person that's done this before, Jesus, heard of him, you know, he's risen from the dead. This could probably be him. We threw it over, we've got all these fish, and all of a sudden, Jesus calls them into shore, and it says in the text, and John noticed that it was Jesus. It actually says the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, all through the gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John, And there's a lot of reasons for why this might be. Why not just use your name? Why not just say John? It's that weird kind of talk about yourself in the third person type deal. Well, I think it's because there is a John who begins the gospel of John who is not this John. Now, keep in mind, like a third of the ancient world was either named John or Mary. I mean, these names were everywhere. So to differentiate between John the Baptist, who is the first witness, and the beloved disciple John, who is the witness at the end of the gospel, it's John and the disciple that Jesus loved. So it says the disciple that Jesus loved, John, the disciple, sees that it's Jesus. Now this is kind of funny, because there are two moments in this gospel where we see a little healthy rivalry between Peter and John. And we know actually later in the early church, there's not a rivalry in the sense of they were preaching a different gospel or they were egocentric or something like that. There's just a little healthy rivalry in the sense that John's writing earlier in the gospel that the disciples, the disciple that Jesus loved and Peter ran to the tomb. And Peter was about to get there and the disciple that Jesus loved got there first. Now remember, John is the last gospel that's written. It may be the last book in the New Testament that's written. And it's almost like John was like, okay, Peter's dead at this point. The other apostles are dead at this point. It's time for me to tell you what really happened. You remember on that morning at the tomb? Yeah, I got there first. I was a little faster. Remember when Jesus appeared on the shore? Yeah, it was the the beloved disciple that saw him first, that noticed it was Jesus first. And of course, we get this wonderful ending of John where you see this is not a rivalry between them in terms of pride. It's they were both so eager to go and do the mission that God had given them. And in fact, later, Jesus, when he restores Peter, he says, you two are going to have different paths. Peter is going to be taken. He's going to have people that take him a place he doesn't want to be. He's going to die a death he doesn't want to die. And because of that, he's going to glorify God. And, he's, and, and uh, Peter's looking at John like, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And she says, hey, if he stays until I return, what is that to you? Go and accomplish your mission. So John lets us know that it's him, 
who sees Jesus. But actually, Peter gets the better of him here because Peter's the one that jumps off the boat into the water and starts swimming to Jesus. Now, the scholars who have studied this said, you know, it's probably faster, actually, to just take the boat in than it is to swim 100 yards. But that is not Peter's way. Peter is the guy, he looks, he sees Jesus, he impulsively jumps in and follows him. That's what makes Peter Peter. That's one of the great things about him. So they come into the shore with these giant nets. And I have to imagine that as they're doing this, they're reminded of something Jesus said to them very early in their ministry. When he called them the first time, he says, you guys come follow me. And there's like an implied why in this story. Like, why, why would they follow him? Well, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, he's a miracle worker. They were followers of John the Baptist. But Jesus gives them a reason. If you follow me, you will become fishers of men. If you follow me, you will become leaders of men. If you follow me, you will have a mission that can never fail, that you can give your life for, and I am going to train you to do just that. And I wonder if as they're coming into the shore, they're remembering, oh yeah, we're not supposed to be fishing for fish. We're supposed to be fishing for men. The command, the mission at the end of the gospel is not, so go back and do your everyday life and just pretend like nothing ever changed. That's not the mission of the church. The mission is not, he's risen. Isn't that amazing? Greatest story ever told. Just remember that. That's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is, if you have come to Christ, you are now part of the great commission. Go and make disciples. Spend your life being a fisher of people, reconciling them back to God, bringing them back into the family, getting them back into the kingdom. Your mission is the same as the disciples. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, the Great Commission in Matthew is so easy to break down into into steps that we can all take. Go make disciples, and there's two ways to do that. First step, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what we call evangelism. So people need to know what it is that Jesus did. The first step of making a disciple is letting them know what the good news is. So evangelism comes from the word evangel, or euangelion is what it is in the New Testament, which just means an announcement of good news. The first part of our mission is just to let people know what's happened. The gospel is a pronouncement of something radical that's happened that changed all of history. That's the message of the gospel. There's a new king. There's a new savior. God has reconciled us to him. You were separated from him by sin, but now because of his son's blood on the cross, your sins are paid for. So come and be united with God again. That's the announcement of the gospel. And the second half is, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Okay, this is the harder part of the Great Commission. Because the first part is good news. Who wouldn't want to hear good news? This is what God has done for you. And if you come to him, you should start obeying him. Right? That's like a less popular message today. Now think about this. In John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel message in a single verse. God loves the whole world, gave his son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'm afraid that a lot of times our gospel stops a little bit short of that. Our gospel is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and you just need to know that. That's not the gospel. That's not, that is a pronouncement of what God has done, but you actually have to turn to him. All through the Gospel of John, he never actually uses the noun for faith. 
You'll see this all over the Bible. There's nothing wrong with it. But John wants to make a very specific point. He always uses the verb believe. A couple dozen times, instead of have faith in him, believe in him. Trust in him. Turn your life towards him. Bet everything you have on him. Surrender to him. Obey him. All of these actions are what it takes to be returned to God through Jesus Christ. So the gospel is, he loved you so much, give your life to him. Give your life to him. Learn to obey him. Learn to surrender to him. So what does Jesus want the disciples to do? He rose from the dead. He calls them to the shore. He gives them the mission of fishing for men. He wants them to go out and live like they trust in him. Live like they've surrendered their lives to him. So he calls them over to the shore, and they get out, and Peter's the first one to get in, and, they, and he's reminding them, we don't have this text, but later in the other Gospels we see that he's reminding them of the things that he's taught them. And one of the verses that I just think goes straight with the Great Commission is when Jesus is sitting, and this is how we started the series, Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and he says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. I'm going to build my church, and nothing nothing on earth or in heaven or in hell could ever stop what God has promised to do. So he gives the disciples the mission of fishing for men, but he's doing something else here. He doesn't just present the mission. So if you don't know what to do, the first thing to do is figure out what you're called to do. Surrender to him, obey him, walk with him, follow him, go tell people what he's done, and walk with them until they give their lives to Christ. That's the mission of the church. Make disciples of all the nations. But he actually does something along the way to get you to where you can fulfill that mission. He prepares his people. He prepares his people. So, like I said, let's snap back into the action. Peter is in the water. He's swimming towards the shore. And oftentimes, when we talk about this story, we skip right to the second half of the text, which we didn't read today, where Jesus restores Peter. You probably know this story. He says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, of course I love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Three times he says this. And Peter gets a little exasperated and he says, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, so go and feed my sheep. Go and take care of my people. Go and fulfill the Great Commission. So that restoration of Peter is so significant because Peter denies Jesus three times. He's restored three times. It's an amazing story of what God can do to bring somebody back to him. But I want you to see something first about Peter's restoration that actually happens before that story. So he calls out, Peter jumps in the water and begins to swim to Jesus. Now, like I said, Peter is kind of an act first, think later kind of guy. And so once he's in the water, he's swimming to Jesus. And I wonder if at that point it starts to occur to him, is this a good idea? Should I be doing this? Because you remember, he's seen Jesus at least once, but he hasn't been restored yet. The, the, the lingering thought in his head has to be, do you think he's ever going to bring up the whole denial thing? Do you think Jesus is going to address this at some point? Because what most of us would do is, if we had denied Jesus, and he hadn't said anything about it, I would probably hang back among the disciples a little bit until Jesus brought it up. It's kind of one of those, if you have a situation with somebody that's not fully resolved, and so you just kind of avoid them for years, you know, this is Peter showing us a model of what it means to be a mature Christian. What mature Christians do is, when you screw up, which you will, when you sin, which you will, when you do something that you're ashamed of, which you will, he goes back to Jesus. 
Right? This is a huge turning point in your heart and in your spiritual life. When you go from when I sin, I avoid God, to when I sin, I run to God. This is a huge change. And Peter's got this, okay? Now, some of it is because Peter didn't think about it. He just goes. He's like, that's Jesus. I'm going to see him. Oh, yeah, I denied him last time. He just goes. And in your heart, this is what maturity looks like. When you, I'm not talking about denying him. I'm just saying when you go through a spell where you are just not as devoted as you should be or you do something you know you shouldn't have done or you let somebody down or you don't know what to say at the right time, what is your first response? Is it to jump in the water and go to Jesus, or is it to hang back on the boat and just wait and see if God brings it up? If you want to be restored to God, when you feel insecure, when you feel lonely, when you feel like you've let God down, go to him and let him prepare you and restore you. That's what it means to fulfill the mission. It's like all of a sudden we don't believe the gospel anymore. The gospel is you were sinful, you could do nothing about it, God died to pay for your sins, you trusted in him, and he forgave you. And then all of a sudden it's like, but now that I am a Christian, I'm worried that if I do something wrong, maybe God will turn his back on me? No. The gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He forgave all your sins. He cleansed you. He's restoring you. He's transforming you to look like his son. And all of a sudden as a Christian, you sin, and guess what? He'll restore you, forgive you, cleanse you, draw you to himself over and over and over again. But you go to him. You go to him. So Peter does this. He goes to him. He swims out there, and he gets to the shore, and we don't know what he and Jesus talked about before this conversation, but the the rest of the disciples are coming in, and what Peter really needed to know was that he was forgiven by God. He was forgiven. He was restored. Now, John also gets a little restoration. So remember this. John is probably like the other pole. Jesus... uh, Peter denies Jesus three times. The rest of the disciples scatter. They just leave. But John, in chapter 19, we find out John actually had been there at the cross. This is one of the most tender moments in the Gospels. Do you remember this? Jesus is on the cross, and he looks down, and he sees John, the apostle, with his mother, Mary. And he looks down, and he says, Mary, this is now your son. John, this is now your mother. And it says that John took Mary into his own house to take care of her. So John had not really done anything wrong, but what Jesus wants to do to prepare John is to let him know that he is with him. Let him know that he is with him. What all the disciples needed to know was, after the resurrection, are things going to change? After the resurrection, are we going to be left alone? After the resurrection, is Jesus still going to have the same power on earth that he did before? Is he going to be able to do the things that he promised to do after the resurrection? And it's amazing that in the end of this, in every single situation, and the most common promise of the Bible is, I will be with you. I will be with you. Think about how the Great Commission ends. It begins with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go make disciples. And it ends with, and remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I am always with you. Peter needed to know that he was forgiven to be prepared for the mission. John needed to know that Jesus was with him always, even to the end of the age. So he restores Peter, he restores John, and then things radically change. Things radically change. So before the resurrection, the disciples are easily deterred. That would be putting it kind of nicely. They are almost impotent before the resurrection. They can't cast out demons. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, he takes Peter and James and John up there. He 
you know, skin bright as the sun. He looks like his resurrected self. Moses and Elijah are there. It's this amazing moment of Jesus' glory and his grandeur. And then they get down to the bottom of the mountain. Do you remember what happens? They've got this guy that has a demon, and the disciples have been trying to cast him out, and they're worried the demon's going to maybe beat up the disciples because they can't cast this demon out. And Jesus is like, giant eye roll moment. He says, how long will I be with this generation? And he goes ahead and says, okay, you got to pray and fast, and that's how you cast this one out. I mean, the disciples, just they can do nothing before the resurrection. And it's not just Peter and John in these moments at the cross of doubt or of denial. It's just that they don't have any power in the mission. There's no power in what the disciples are doing until after the resurrection and after Pentecost. When Pentecost happens, which we'll celebrate in a couple of weeks, the Spirit comes down and things radically change. So it's not just that God gives you a mission that sounds maybe impossible. Go to all the ends of the earth and get people to be disciples? We're supposed to do that? Yeah, over 2,000 years, that's what the church has been doing, but it's not out of our own power. It's because God prepares his people. So look at what happens in the book of Acts. you got Peter and John, who are the same Peter and John, but before the resurrection, they can barely do anything, and afterwards, they're preaching everywhere. In Acts chapter 4, they begin preaching, and they're arrested, and they go before these leaders of the Jews. They go before the Sanhedrin, and this little dialogue is so great. You can't even imagine Peter saying this before the resurrection, before Pentecost. So they arrest him, and they charge them never to speak about Jesus again. In chapter 4, verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. So this doesn't deter the Jewish leaders. They go back out, they're preaching again, and they're like, we got to do something about this. So it says, actually, in chapter 5, they are so angry at them, they wanted to kill them. They are so mad about them preaching Jesus after they told them not to, that they want to kill them. And so basically, they bring them in and they say, if you keep preaching, we're going to beat you to death. I mean, they have the power to do this, and they've threatened it, and here's what Peter says. Peter stands up, and he basically says, okay, guys, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, who God has given to those who obey him. Isn't that interesting? God has given to those who obey him. So they say, well, you better stop preaching and teaching. And so they beat him, and they send him back out. And at the end of this chapter, we see this wonderful sentence. It says, When they called in the apostles and beat them and charged them not to speak of the name of Jesus, they let them go. And Peter and John, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had counted, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple courts and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. I mean, if you read straight from the Gospels through into the book of Acts, you would be saying, who are these guys? Who are these guys? These are not the disciples I was reading about 10 chapters ago. What changed? What changed is Jesus died, he rose from the dead, he prepared them, he restored them, he sent his spirit to accomplish the mission that he gave them. We, in and of ourselves, are hopeless to do what God has called us to do. But because he's with us, because he's forgiven us, because he rules over everything, because his spirit is in us, we are equipped to do what he's called us to do. So here's the last thing. 
Jesus provides for the journey. Jesus provides for the journey. So he gives them the mission, he prepares the people, and he provides for the journey. So in, back in John chapter 21, Jesus does something really curious when the disciples get to the shore. So they get over there, and when they got on the land, there was a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. And there was bread, and Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. And so Simon Peter, again, just doing what Jesus says, walks aboard, hauls the net full of fish, and although there were many of them, the net was not torn. And Jesus says, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? Because at this point, it's pretty obvious who he is. So Jesus comes and takes the bread, and he gives it to them, and so with the fish. And this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. Jesus knows that they're going to need supernatural strength to accomplish the mission. So what does he do? He cooks some breakfast. He cooks some breakfast. There's actually another instance of this happening in the Bible. If you remember back in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 18, you get the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And this is one of those triumphant moments in the Old Testament. So Elijah gathers all these false prophets together on Mount Carmel, and they have this huge showdown, and he says, you call on Baal, and I'll call on God, and they call on Baal all day, and nothing happens, and Elijah douses the altar in water, and he bends down, and he prays, and fire from heaven comes down, and, and it devours the sacrifice, and it laps up the stones and all the water, and it's like, God is God. This is amazing. But it doesn't really pan out the way you think it's going to. Right after that, Jezebel, who's the wicked queen of Israel, says, oh yeah, you embarrassed my prophets. God do to me what you did to them if you aren't dead when, the next time I see you. So Elijah, you would think after staring down the prophets of Baal, this would be no big deal for him. He is terrified. He is terrified. And he flees. In a moment of weakness, he runs away. And he, God finds him in this spot in the wilderness, and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And an angel of the Lord, it says, on a hot stone, cooks up breakfast for Elijah. And what's so amazing about that story is Elijah's going to need it because he's going down to Mount Horeb, which is 40 days' journey away from where he was in the wilderness. And it said that meal that God prepared powered him all the way to Mount Horeb. God prepares for the mission. He, he provides for the mission. He provides for his people. He's going to give you what you need as you follow him. When Laura and I were on our honeymoon, we went to Phoenix, or Scottsdale area, and we wanted to go on a hike. Now, I thought, hike, nature walk, this will be great. Laura had other designs. She wanted to go on like a real hike. And of course, the mountain that we wanted to climb, Camelback Mountain, what the regular trail was closed, and the only thing open was like the double black diamond, you know, trail. And we were looking up reviews of it online. We're like, how bad can this be? So we thought this will be fun. You know, we're on top of the world. We're newlyweds. So we get our coffees, and we call an Uber, and we get there, and we're getting close to this place. And the guy who's driving, this, this guy is great. He's, he's a Wisconsin. He's a former, like, Wisconsin cop, and he fits all the stereotypes, you would think. And he's like, uh, where's your water? <laughs> We're like, I mean, it's, it's just a hike, man. You know, we've got our coffee. And he's like, do you have snacks? <laughs> like, no, we're not planning to be out there that long. And he's like, do you have hiking shoes on? And we're like, we have, you know, like running shoes on. He's like, all right. He's like, you guys clearly don't know what you're in for. He's like, people die on this mountain. 
He's like, people, they have rescue missions that go out on this mountain for people that have heat strokes and people that get stuck. He's like, you're going to need water and snacks at the minimum. And boy, was he right. I mean, because when we went on that thing, it was the hardest hike I've ever been on. There was one point, Laura didn't have any trouble with it, but I was on all fours climbing up this thing. You know, I mean, it was, it was a terrible hike. But what he did was, and I don't even think this is legal for an Uber driver. What he did was, he's like, all right, I'm stopping at Walgreens. So he stops at Walgreens. He's like, go in there, get water, get snacks, get anything else, sunscreen, anything else you're going to need because you will not do well on this if you don't have those things. And he waited for us in the parking lot while we went in and bought water and snacks, came back, took us, dropped us off at the mountain, wished us luck, and we went on the hike. And it turned out to be great, but I can't imagine doing that hike, one, if it had been hotter. I mean, it was a pretty nice day. And two, if we didn't have water, we, we would have been in a bad position. And looking back, I'm so thankful for that guy that honestly, he could have just done his job, dropped us off, doesn't care, never going to see us again, ever, probably, if we go without water. And he could have been totally fine. He wasted time and honestly wasted probably his next call to make sure that we were ready for the hike. And it's like one of the things about what God does is he has this strange way of equipping you for the mission that you're on before you even know you're on it. A lot of times what he'll do is he'll introduce something into your life, whether it's suffering or a relationship or just an impulse to study something or to tell a story to someone that you don't know about your faith. And God has been orchestrating all along that that's the thing you're going to need when you get into this situation. What God does is he's never going to bring you into a situation without equipping you for that situation. Now, sometimes the way he equips us feels like we're not equipped. Sometimes the way he equipped us is by stripping everything else away so we get into a situation we feel totally vulnerable, totally unprepared, totally out of our depth, and we turn directly to him. That's sometimes the way that he prepares us. We think of preparation like he's going to give me everything I need so that I ace this. Now, maybe what he's going to do is he's going to give you everything you need by taking away everything you think you need so that you have the only thing you really need, which is the Holy Spirit, the power of God, and your trust in Christ. Sometimes that's the way he prepares us. But you'll never, we we say he'll never give you more than you can handle. That's not biblical. He'll give you all kinds of things you can't handle. But he will never give you anything that he's not going to walk with you through. He's never going to give you anything that he's not preparing you with what you need along the way. He prepares the disciples. He prepares the church. He prepares his people today to do what he's called them to do. So the mission of God is to go and make disciples, to evangelize, to train, to teach people to obey him, to give your life to him fully, to follow him. And in John, at the very beginning of John, one of the theme verses is in John chapter 1, verse 12. And in the beginning, it says, he came to his own, but his people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, again, remember this, all who received him, all who trusted in him, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the message of John's gospel, that you might know who Jesus is and have life in him, that you might have the right, the authority is what that word means, that you might be able to become a child of God. Isn't that the most amazing way to start out? I'm going to tell you all these things so that you can know that you can be a part of God's family. Now, I've made it through this entire sermon without using a single illustration about our new baby Davy. So give me, give me one moment here, because this is just so cool. I have a friend who 
uh, I've known since we were in middle school. And he has a couple of kids, and he texted me last week. He says, hey, man, I've got to tell you something really cool. He's like, when you become a dad, there's all kinds of things that change, and you'll get all kinds of great lessons and all that. He's like, but here's something I just want to tell you that was the coolest to me, is when you become a dad and you hold your child for the first time, you will never, ever see God the same way again. He's like, you'll never think about God the same way. Because what you feel when you look down at your child and what it means to be a dad is I will protect you, I will provide for you, I love you, I see you, I know you, you are mine. And the crazy thing is, you feel that, and you know that, and you're ready to do that. And then all of a sudden you think about God and you say, I have limited means, I am a fallible person, I don't know what I'm doing most of the time, I don't have unlimited resources, but I'm going to do everything I can for our daughter to grow up to love and serve God. Now think about our God, infinite resources, infinite wisdom. He knows all things. Everything works according to his will. He's never short on anything that he needs. He gives the spirit without measure, and he looks at you and feels the same way. I thought, what a great text to get from a friend, because that is so true. You won't see the fatherhood of God in the same way ever again when you look at that little baby and say, they are so helpless, but I'm going to protect them. I'm going to provide for them. And what God does when he sends you out on mission is he looks the exact same way. What an unbelievable privilege, John says, that we get to become children of God. He gives us a mission, he restores us, prepares us, and he provides along the way. That's what it means to be a child of God, to be on mission for him. So he is risen. So go and fulfill the mission. And your father is with you. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are with us, you love us, you provide for us. Father, it's not just that you love us in a way that we just reflect on and say, okay, great. You love us in such a way that it's worth giving our lives to follow you, to trust in you, to walk with you. And Father, not to be deterred by the things of the world, not to be deterred by setbacks and disappointments and frustrations. Lord, I'm thinking about the fact that every one of these disciples that you sent on a mission was a mission to their death. And even John, Lord, who wasn't martyred, had to wait and wait and wait. He suffered, he was persecuted, and he died in old age knowing that you were with him every step of the way. Father, give us a sense of our mission that is so compelling, it's worth giving our lives for. Father, help us to know that wherever you call us, you will provide for us. And Father, whether that means just having difficult conversations, whether that means cutting sin out of our life, whether that means going to the nations, picking up our families and moving and going to the nations, Lord, where you command, we will follow because you are a good father. You give all the provision that we need and you've given the most valuable thing in the universe, your only son, so that if we trust in you, we will live with you forever. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.